Welcome to Tattooed Freaks in Business Suits, recorded live in the kitchen of the Personal Touch Career Services in Denver, Colorado. I am your host, Donna Shannon. As a professional career coach, I help people navigate the hiring maze to get the jobs they really love. In addition to working with job seekers one-on-one, I do have a book available. You can find How to Get a Job Without Going Crazy on Amazon or, of course, my website. I actually have two guests today. Joining me is Rustin Tone, the Regional Manager at Nugistics, and Dan Weinstein, Vice President at Aon, as well as the founder of Colorado Leadership Cares. And we're going to be talking today about uh, some of the barriers for employment, and especially how employers can become a more trauma-informed employer and tap some hidden talent pools. So overall, our show's purpose is to explore and redefine the world of work, especially as Gen X, Millennials, and those to come after seek positions of leadership that still allow them to be themselves. Every show, we will explore a topic related to business or job searching. And of course, we're going to talk about tattoos. Our sponsor is the uh, Personal Touch Career Services, Denver's top-rated coaches. We focus on the practical tools for your job search, such as resumes, LinkedIn profiles, job search coaching, and ongoing classes. Check out our ridiculously long website, personaltouchcareerservices.com. Once again, that's personaltouchcareerservices.com, or, you know, just Google it. So, hi, gentlemen. How are y'all doing today? Doing well. Excellent, thanks. Thanks for the invitation to be on the show. Great, great. So, um, why don't you guys just um, do a little introduction for yourselves? Tell us a little bit about you know each of you and how you got in this involved in this whole project. Hi, uh, Russ and Tom here, and my opinions are not my employers. Uh, a little bit about myself. I'm a Colorado native, uh, born in a mountain town. Lived in Denver since about 99 and started my HR career about 11 years ago. It's been an extraordinary journey and I really love the work. I um, started uh, speaking about uh, alternative type uh, opportunities years ago in churches, uh, in my sermons. Uh, it's been a passion area of mine. And most recently, we came up with a concept called the Trauma-Informed Employer that builds off a set of principles that healthcare providers and other social type organizations use to work with people who've experienced trauma. And so as Dan and I uh, met each other and began talking with one another, after several meetings, we landed on, hey, you know, there's this whole tool system that exists out there that could be a great benefit to for-profit employers and other organizations. Uh, one that provides insights into people that uh, may not fit the regular mold or uh, the normal uh, way you would get a job. And so we wanted to explore that and kind of blow the lid off uh, what might be uh, um, otherwise uh, challenging and, uh, <laughs> and just hopefully we open some eyes around what would be possible in these alternative talent pools. And uh, this is Dan, Dan Weinstein, and I guess, uh, so not a Colorado native, although the rest of my family is, so uh, originally from New York, um, and uh, came out here, actually dragged my Colorado native wife back here, um, and, and got three little kids that are all in, all in school now, 
And uh, I've, my career really started in, in business development and sales and took an interesting path. And as I've got into the health and benefits space um, and working with HR and with uh, really attracting and retaining talent, I started to um, see areas, uh, you know, uh, just, just individuals and, and people in the community that, that were really being underserved and not, not really being hidden out there. And, and so I started creating, and this is where Colorado Leadership Cares came from, creating an organization to bring uh, those people I work with, so HR professionals, senior HR professionals, to do skills-based volunteering at local nonprofits that were breaking down barriers to employment. So um, was working with local organizations like the Women's Bean Project and the Gathering Place and the Casa Resource Center, um, all of which practice this trauma-informed care, which again, neither Rustin nor I created that concept, but um, you know, took that and, and started to see how it applied to, to the for-profit world. And, and since then, I've joined the, the Denver Workforce Development Board and continue to try to make connections here, including the connection to Rustin and um, the areas he was passionate about that intersected with the areas that I was passionate about. And that kind of, that became the genesis for this talk. Cool. Cool. I actually have a little bit of experience with this uh, population myself as far as working with job seekers. So back in 2012, I was part of a task force hired by the state and we redesigned their workshops that were being taught uh, part of the employment first program which is for people who are receiving food assistance and it was great because we dealt head-on with issues like um, how do you get a job when you've got a felony record or homelessness uh, some of those other challenges and how do you deal with that um, then personally i've been a volunteer with the salvation army women's recovery facility in arvada colorado Oh, Lord, since like 2003, maybe? <laughs> so, yeah, it just kind of helped coach people with some life skills there, and, and certainly job searching becomes part of it. So um, when you're talking about these trauma-informed, what sort of traumas are you talking about, and what kind of barriers to employment? Well, there's, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a number of areas. I mean, just kind of, if, if you look at... at how it's uh, categorized, um, you have areas like sexual abuse and assault, um, physical abuse, emotional abuse, um, serious accidents and illnesses, um, being a victim or witness to, to violence. Um, so there's a, there's a whole range, and that's by no means all-inclusive. Um, and, and one of the things, that I know Russ could jump into a couple here, but one of the things that really sticks out about trauma as a whole, regardless of what area is that trauma that um, that's experienced as children, if you are a child experiences trauma, has a much larger effect on, on, on the individual. Um, not to say that trauma experience in your adult is not. So um, a lot of these things, a lot of these areas that happen to people um, and then they grow up and, and, and hopefully have not experienced additional trauma, but still have this in their background, still impacting their everyday life. Yeah, I want to add to that just a little bit of the, the population that we're talking about here. Those uh, people that have experienced these levels of trauma often find themselves working through mental illness uh, somewhere on the spectrum. They uh, have been addicted or working in some level of recovery, uh, have been victims of some level of abuse, including domestic violence may be experiencing homeless, may have a criminal record, 
may commit crimes and not have a criminal record, and any other type of, uh, um, you know, impact. And some of these populations uh, have multiple uh, uh, check boxes there, right. and others just have one. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what kind of accommodation can employers make to attract these populations? So if it's all right, I want to back up just a little bit and maybe pull apart just a couple of those areas. Would that be all right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. So a couple of pieces that, you know, we see when we're going through uh, and kind of reviewing applications or resumes or people are searching for talent, you know, we see... um, people with a past criminal history or addiction and recovery issues. So I guess um, one of the things that we've seen in the nation so far, we've seen campaigns like Ban the Box come through and that's had some success, but it's not being, it's not actually as effective as we'd like it to be. Um, we see on somebody's job employment application, uh, employment gaps, or maybe they're transitioning jobs uh, over and over and over again. And of course, that begs the question, you know, what's happened to this person? Um, which is one of the premises of the trauma-informed employment is not, not what has this person done, but what has happened to this person. And so as we're talking to the addict, as we're talking to someone in recovery, as we're talking to somebody that has a past criminal history, what we want to make sure that we're also sharing here is that everybody needs a coach. Everybody needs self-esteem. Everybody needs to build upon the experience they've had for themselves. And so make sure when you're representing yourself, if you're in part of this population, that you are looking at your experiences from the past as an opportunity to contribute to your future and not putting yourself down. And so that's kind of the message that I want the audiences to hear, both those that have affected and that can help. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And like I, with the program that we did with the state, one of the big issues with the felony background, and for any of our listeners who don't know, the ban the box movement means, you know, where you go on an application and it's got that question, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And you have to check yes or no. And there's so many employers will see that on the application and throw it away. So they're trying, there's a movement to actually do regulation on either a state basis um, through legislation to make it illegal to ask that question, just like it would be illegal for me to ask if you're a U.S. citizen. I can ask if you have the legal right to work in the U.S., but, you know, I can't discriminate on somebody being a citizen or not. But going back to, like, the felony question is... It's important for the job seeker, if you find yourself in that situation, like a lot of the women I worked with at Salvation Army, they would have gotten felonies based on their addictive behavior and the need to convince the employer that, hey, I've really changed. I've been through this program and now I'm just looking for somebody to give me a chance. Yep. And that's and it's interesting there because you, you, you kind of bring us right to that next piece of we talk a lot and, and I would say there's a decent move for employers um, to be open, somewhat open to giving people a chance, giving people a second chance and um, especially and whether it's through some of the stuff that I do or, or that you've done when you volunteer and you get out there and you realize that some of these individuals have, have uh, 
gotten caught in a in a in a spiral, right? Where mm -hmm. where circumstances have been um, created a situation where they've gotten a felony. You know, it just pulls that in. But but then once you've given them a chance and they get into the workplace, and this is really where where Russ and I were focusing on is how do you make sure that they can succeed there? Um, if especially with with a number of these um, populations, it's almost guaranteed they've experienced some level of trauma. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and then and then you know the uh, you know put the kind of the caveat here is that the broader population has also experienced trauma uh, somewhere along the spectrum. So let's uh, you know these are all the things that we're going to kind of dive into and discuss are all good almost basic HR uh, things to, to, to put into place um, that will just help companies be successful every which way. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, uh, you know, as, as we start to, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe kind of dive into, well, what does that look like for an employer, right? What are these, um, you, you mentioned accommodations. I don't even know if it's necessarily accommodations, but shifts in how you look at working with your employees and with your managers and, and all. Um, there, there are a few kind of key areas that, that come to mind. I mean, one, when we tell people who experience trauma, there's that, that very act, whatever it may have been, has been a, a lack of control and choice. And mm -hmm. so the, the inverse of that is the ability to give employees some level of control and some level of choice in what they're doing and how they do it and uh, is is big and, it, and and while that may seem obvious, there are lots of situations within the everyday workday where, um, especially kind of entry level employees, have very little to none of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so tapping into some of these organizations, um, you know, along with the, the individual relationships that these organizations are building with people, you know, when you start a job interview process, that's what you're starting. You're checking out the relationship. You begin to discover one another, what your organization is, where this person's been, the experiences and competencies they bring, mm -hmm. and you build a relationship. So as an organization begins to explore ways to find alternative talent, they find maybe a relationship with a trusted organization, somebody that really cares about, you know, the individuals that we mentioned earlier. Um, and it doesn't have to be all of them, it could be one of them. Maybe it's the passion area of the business owner or the hiring manager, and that might bring a, a good tie to the well-being the person's feeling by reaching out into this. But again, it, it, one of the things, one of the pitfalls, one of the traps, is we all want this plug and play, buy it off the shelf. We live in America, it's gotta be ready, it's on demand, I want it now. Two day shipping, it's all Amazon Prime. Well, people aren't like that, right? Yeah. So to be able to take somebody off the shelf and, and just plug them into a position, you know, that's hard to do from a, just a regular talent pool, right? Very so true. looking at an alternative talent pool, you know, you've got to build and discover the relationship with the source and the, the organization that you're looking to pull from, and then trust that relationship that has been developed internally with the candidate and the person that they're referring. And that's just one way to tap into some of these pools. But let me stop there because I think I heard you uh, start with a question and then I cut you off. Oh, no. Um, so. Which are some of the organizations that 
uh, you would like partner with. I think you mentioned the Women's Bean Project, and um, not all of our listeners are in the Denver area. So could you just tell me a little bit more about the types of organizations you're talking about? Yeah, so when when I was putting together some of these events, like I said, I was, I was looking at organizations that had programs specifically focused on employment. And the Women's Bean Project, um, which if you don't know, Google them. Uh, they, they, they sell amazing bean soup mixes and other, and other products that go to support their mission. But um, they, they set up a system there um, whereby they're hiring, so specific to women, as, as the name implies, um, who have had these barriers, these, these, these traumas, whether it be homelessness, previous addiction, um, uh, abuse, or uh, um, incarceration, um, and they are, and they need a second chance. Uh, and, and so they will, they will hire them, so they're actually working and getting paid by the hour to, to do, to put together products or whatnot, but a good portion of their time there, their, their nine to five or uh, I think it's actually like nine to four thirty or whatever their their work day is, um, is spent in life skills and job mm-hmm. skills. Um, they they partner with Dress for Success to help them make sure they have an appropriate wardrobe for interviewing and for uh, working. And the program has a defined uh, limit, so they can't just they can't stay there forever. Um, they they the Women's Bean Project specifically has continued to evolve, so. Um, their program now is flexible based on where the women come in and where you know what level they need to move to. But it's generally a three to six month window, and then they uh, they need to get a, a job outside of there with these skills they've taken. Um, the 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 small piece that Colorado Leadership Cares plays in that process is that we'll come in and perform what we call mock interviews, mm-hmm. uh, a whole series of mini mock interviews for the women where they'll go through six of these uh, with, with hiring managers, CHROs, VPs of HR. Um, and as we know, everyone's different even at that level and how they interview and the questions they ask and the feedback they give. Um, but more than anything else, these are strangers to the women, right? So they're not part of the program at the Women's Being Project that they've been working with. And so there's a level of nervousness, which is good nervousness, um, and anticipation, and then, and it's incredible to see because as they go from the first interview to the third to the sixth, they get relaxed and 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 they and they've worked on some of their answers and they've figured out how to they've taken the advice and they and 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 we talk about being a really safe place to make a mistake to ask a question um, and and get right for the real for the real thing. So really looking to to bolster confidence there. So that's one example. Um, I mean the gathering place. On, on the flip side is, is sort of a, I don't want to say a polar opposite because they're trying to do a lot of the same things, but they don't have a set program. So they're a drop-in center for mm. uh, women, children, transgender individuals, um, and they're providing really the, the Maslow's hierarchy of services to, to, uh, to these individuals on a day-to-day basis. Um, and as, are, as some of those individuals are ready for it, they have these employment skills. And Melanie Deem over there runs the program and they can help them get GEDs and, they can, and, and we, we do mock interviews there as well and they do job fairs. But not everyone they work with is ready for that level. So they're, they're really looking to meet their members where they are, where they come in the door. And sometimes that's simply just a dry, safe place to, take a, to sit down right. and take a breath. So... There's a whole series of kind of opportunities for people. 
beyond uh, the uh, organizational level, and there's grassroots organizations in almost every community, county, state, you know, in, in the union, there's also a lot of government attention on these matters. Um, any one of these numbers does probably have a government organization or tie to it. And so one of the things that I want to point out about eviction recovery, those re-entering from uh, uh, being justice involved previously, is that it's got a lot of bipartisan support. You know, we have both uh, Republicans and Democrats who are interested in help solving this problem. And beyond just the legislature, we've got the Supreme, or court system rather, not the Supreme Court, but the court system and the judiciary that understands recidivism is costing us so much money. Yeah, and it does. <laughs> one of the things that we keep finding out is when we have a job, when people have a job, they have a tendency not to reoffend, which means it costs the taxpayer less money, the organization gets retention out of it, and we have made a difference in our communities and our society. So it's beyond uh, just grassroots organizations. Government's also highlighting it, just making sure we have enough uh, voices hearing the message. Yeah. Yeah, I believe um, you were saying in your presentation, it's like right now in, in the Colorado Unemployment is about 2.4%, but among these populations, it's more like 10 to 15% unemployment. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, so our premise here is uh, we have a lot of underemployed people uh, or people that have just given up and stopped looking. Yeah. And so when you look at that percentage, the unemployment rate expands. And that's actually music to a lot of talent acquisition's ears because this has been the most competitive environment that I, as a human resources professional, have ever worked in. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is we don't have any more available talent. Like everything that's available, it, it needs to either be passively sourced, poached from another employer, or found in different pools. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things that, and I think we mentioned in, in the talk that, and, and Rustin touched on is, when you give these individuals a second chance and, and you have an environment that is supportive and, and that will allow them to thrive, they are some of the most loyal employees you can get. And so, you know, and, and again, not from the standpoint of taking advantage of them, but they're not just going to jump uh, ship for another opportunity because, because they know uh, that you've given them that, that, that chance that not many were. So, from a retention standpoint, it's a, it's a huge boom to those organizations that can make that work for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I know we touched on it a little bit, but let's dive a little bit more deeper into some of the changes in the work environment. And this, okay, this is going to sound like in really bad taste, but you know, there's the, you hear this about the millennials all the time that, oh, if something sums up, you better say trigger warning before you talk about a certain topic. Because, you know, just to let people know that you're going to be doing something sensitive. That's not what we're talking about when we're saying modifying our work environment or being a little bit more accepting of people with these issues, correct? I think um, beyond the traditional diversity trainings and inclusion trainings, this is actually a little more disruptive in that end because... Yeah, I mean, there is the whole empathy piece, there's the self-esteem piece, there's the, you know, make sure you know what you're saying and how it sounds to other people piece, but it goes beyond that. Like, we're talking about people who've really had some significant trauma here, and so 
uh, it, it is kind of a culture change. Uh, when you entertain working with somebody who's had serious trauma in their lives or past criminal history or is homeless, you're not going to dress or treat them the same uh, or approach them in the same way that you might somebody who's your average uh, meet expectations employee. Um, you have to think through um, and not only support it through your culture and through leadership, but also have a deep sense of empathy for where the individual is coming from and not that entitlement, well, I pulled my boots on and went to work, so why couldn't they? So it has to be a selfless approach. It has to be like, gosh, when I approach this individual, what, what, might, what might I do to help them feel included, to help them feel involved, to help them feel like they are part of the team? Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, so it's not like putting a protective shell around them. It's thinking of ways to, like you said, get involved and be inclusive. So now we're not walking on eggshells. We're going, how can we communicate with each other in a better manner? You know, and, and you actually just said that the, the piece I was going to add to this is the key word I think about is transparency or transparency and communication. And um and, and that gets that gets missed. So you know, it, the, the more you can, the more you can do that. The more you can, the more you can share information. I, and and I use this example in, in the talk, and, um, and and it's one taken from the gathering place. But they do a strengths assessment for every one of their employees after they're hired. Um, but instead of just doing that and having HR own that information. The, the results of everyone in the organization, all their employees, is shared and open such that anyone could go on there and see, okay, who's good at, you know, who, who's good at leadership? Who really excels there? Because I need, I need to, I'm running a project, I need a, a leader involved in this, right? Um, and, and so to really open that up and not be afraid of the differences of people, but to really, in that case, find the strengths and, 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 and be very open about it. That, I mean, we, we see we see transparency be a big issue, and it's kind of a little bit off course here. But um, around um, salary and the, and and the the differences uh, in in starting salary between men and women for the exact same position, and so you know, transparency helps level the playing field and bring everyone in the same place across the board, especially those that have experienced trauma. Great. So. We know that we could get some more loyal employees this way. What are some of the other benefits to the employers of having this trauma-informed environment? So um, I want to touch on that, but before we move into uh, kind of the value for the employer, I want to just also say that some of the other premises behind being a trauma-informed employer include creating an environment that's safe and secure for other people giving employees the feeling of empowerment. They have a voice um, and can make choices about the work that they're providing for the organization. Being inclusive and understanding diversity. All of these pieces are really, to Dan's point earlier, inclusive of good leadership and good HR. Mm -hmm. So that's not the whole system of being a trauma-informed employer but it does kind of lay foundational pillars on what this needs to stand on. So to answer your question about what benefits exist, Dan named a couple earlier, retention. I'd like to add that we have this, this feeling of um, um, 
doing and making a difference in our communities, in our organization, creating a lasting relationship, not only with another community organization, perhaps, or another place that helps uh, non-all or alternative talent pools, but also a relationship with an individual that's going to change their life. And these individuals initially may need additional tooling, may need additional help, may need additional support, may need additional esteem building, may need additional coaching. But all of that is going to pay off in a loyal employee and making a difference in an individual's life. And nobody is saying you have to scale this program and start out with 50 homeless people. We just need one person to start and make a difference. Have that person go through and experience what it's like to have uh, gainful employment and then support that person and make sure their environment is supported and then try a second. That's yeah. the ask. Yeah. And you know, it, you, you, you mentioned before, right? This, all, all of these pieces, uh, you know, kind of, I always think of the, the Venn diagram uh, overlapping. Um, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, right? So by tapping into the town pools, we inadvertently also, uh, also help to fulfill diversity and inclusion um, programs as we've seen that uh, there's higher rates of incarceration amongst uh, black Americans, um, you know, and, and, and a number of other areas. I don't have all the stats in front of me. Um, but, you know, the, the other thing, you know, from a benefit to employers, as you increase diversity in the workforce, and not just for these programs, uh, and we see it in, in diversity in schools and diversity in neighborhoods, you get a, you actually, you increase diversity of thought, ideas, leaders, and, and that ultimately actually leads to, from the business standpoint, uh, higher rates of success, right? I mean, otherwise you end up being very isolated with one, one thought, right? And, and it's, and it's easy, it's, it's easy to hire the person that looks, thinks, talks just like you. Um, but you don't get, you don't get outside the box at all that way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've come to my favorite part of the show where we get to talk about some tattoos. Now, Dan, I know you don't have tattoos, but you've had some piercings in the past. But Rustin, you've got some ink, right? A little bit. Not a ton. So what have you got? entirely squeezed out and have several on his back. And I was trying to get his um, uh, tattoo guy's name because he actually flies back to Indy to have that work done. Wow. His uh, entire arm is Peter Pan and Neverland and the pirate ship, and it's one of the most incredible tattoos I've ever seen. But mine is the yin-yang, and it reminds me to be balanced, right? That there's a, there is a hole here, there's light, there's dark, and in this reality, we can't have one without the other. So I got mine very young. I was a teenager. It was actually an interesting story because, you know, you had to be 18, but I was like 16. So my mother, who happens to be a legal secretary, wrote me up an affidavit who I took to spring and uh, I went to a tattoo shop uh, somewhere, somewhere in Colorado Springs and I remember I took two others' name was Goat and mm -hmm. he looked at me and he was like, you're too young and I said, I have a paper and he looked at me and he was like, I've never seen this before and you know he never looked at it again <laughs> in the cabinet, and he gave me my tattoo. Yeah. I, I thought that that was remarkable in life. <laughs> this kid brought me a piece of paper that said I could do this so I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, don't feel bad. My first tattoo I got when I was 17, and uh, I was actually married at the time. I had already gotten married. And he's all like, well, you're married, so you're old enough. 
Then, uh, you know, piercings, on the other hand, both ears were pierced. I haven't worn them in years and years and years. And then I, I had tried my tongue. When, uh, you know, I, I really loved it at the time, but, man, I smashed my teeth real bad years and years ago. So I still remember that tongue ring. Okay. <laughs> well, see, so there you go. Yeah. That's, some, that's some serious body modification. I, I never did the piercing route beyond just lots in my ears, but, yeah. My hat's off to anybody who does their tongue. That's intense to me. <laughs> I've bitten my tongue a number of times. Yeah, I think that yeah. <laughs> similar, similar sensation. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. So, Dan and Rustin, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, you can. Well, you, so this is Dan. You can find me on, on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Dan Weinstein underscore CO. Um, and uh, my organization, Colorado Leadership Cares, can be found at www.clcares.org. Yeah, this is Rustin, and you can find me on Twitter at Rustin Tom. That's at R-U-S-T-I-N-T-O-N-N. And, of course, LinkedIn under the same name. And I'll uh, catch your message there, and we'll figure out a way to connect. Thank you. Sounds good. And everyone out there, remember to uh, please give us a like if you enjoyed this episode. And uh, leave us some comments. And be sure to follow us on all your favorite podcast platforms. And until next time, I'll see you later.